Wow, Northland. I put on my social media this morning that we're, we're going to get rowdy today. Um, because Friday, we had Good Friday. I sit right there thinking through the seven statements of, of Jesus on the cross. Yesterday, on Silent Saturday, I came here about 3.30, and I went through every station that we had and contemplating what Jesus did on behalf of us. But Sunday's coming. Yeah, because he didn't stay dead. And so we're going to have a party. You ready to have a party? Okay, okay. Well, let's pray, Father. We are here because of you. And I do pray the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart will be pleasing to you. Jesus, we want to lift you up. You tell us if we lift you up, you will draw all men, women, boys, and girls to yourself. So, Spirit, I do pray that you would go to work this morning shaping us and molding your people more into the image of our King. I pray for those who are here this morning. They're checking all of this out. Those who are engaging with us online, and they're just a curious. Spirit, I pray that you would use that curiosity to draw them to Jesus, that they might leave different than when they started. And it's in your name we pray. All God's people said? Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to... Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, and we're starting a brand new series this morning on transitions. Everybody say transitions. transitions. Now, you cannot have a transition unless you have a change. Now, how many of you agree with this statement, life is full of changes? If you agree, just raise your hand. That doesn't mean you're Pentecostal. That just means that you're agreeing, like, like, like life is full of changes. Um, <laughs> Nothing that there's wrong with Pentecostal because you're going to leave here thinking, oh my gosh, did we just come to a Pentecostal church? No, we're just excited about Jesus. But, but change is inevitable. Like if you think about some, some funny changes, like for instance, my family and I, we live in Wheaton, Illinois, and we have lived there for the last three years. They, they get a lot of snow, sometimes blizzards. We actually had to buy a snow shovel. We also had to buy a snow blower because uh, after, after a couple of uh, snow shoveling experiences, we we're like, man, this is tough. Let's go get a snow blower. So I got a snow blower, but now we are moving to Florida and you get this thing called, let me think of uh, uh, hurricanes. <laughs> now that's a change, is it not? And so I, I don't know about you though, whenever a blizzard's coming in, even when there was a big storm coming, like even growing up in Tennessee, and you're trying to prepare for it, everybody and their mama goes to the grocery store and buys three things. Anybody, anybody know what they buy? Milk, bread, and eggs. Because undoubtedly, French toast is a universal language. <laughs> but you got blizzard, you got hurricane. What about bodies? Bodies change. You remember when you were younger, you were so energetic and active? I mean, playing pillow fights, you know, with your friends. And you're like running all over the house. But then, then you got old. And then you're like popping, popping ibuprofen like they're Skittles. Cause you're like, oh, my back is so hurting, you know. I was out doing some yard work. I mean, whatever it may be. But you, you were not as, you're not as flexible and agile and energetic as you once were. What about families? They, they change, don't they? You, you remember when you were single? Maybe women, maybe men, maybe some of you still single. But then you got married. And then you got married and she became the ball and chain. 
Now my wife, she is not my ball and chain, just FYI. I love her, but she does keep me, she does keep me in line. That's why she is the better half. But it was a change, right? You, you could no longer act like you were single. You were married. And then I remember, I remember the days that Joni and I would just go to the beach without kids. Oh, those are fun because you could bring your book. I could bring my golf clubs and I didn't have to worry about kids. But then we had, we started having kids. And then the beach experience changed. Now you're bringing all sorts of things to the beach. Now you're bringing little buckets, you're bringing, you know, bringing a little shovel. You're sitting there and you, you can't tan. Yeah, yeah. You're sitting there, you can't tan. You can't read your book. You're building sand castles. And you know, you just get, you just get a little overwhelmed because you're like, oh my gosh, I just remember. You know? but, but, but those are changes. Now, any, any kids in the house, where, 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 where are my teenagers at? Any, any teenagers? Yeah, yeah, we get, we get a lot of teenagers. Uh, you're still in school, I think, right? So there is a change coming in probably about a, a month. Now for my kids, they don't get out until June 3rd. You know, that's just depressing when you say that. But, but there's a change because you're in school, then you're out of school. How many parents you kind of dread summer? You don't have to, you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> so, so we all, we all deal with changes. And some of those changes are funny. We can, we can have fun with, but let me get a little serious for a second. There's probably some in here you're engaging with this online. There's been some serious changes. Maybe you've had some family change. Maybe you were married and now you find yourself divorced. Maybe you lost a parent recently. Maybe you lost a child. Maybe you are estranged from your child. Maybe you've gone through some career changes, vocational change. Maybe, maybe you've gone through some financial change and you've had to downsize. Maybe with the inflation and the way our economy is going right now, there has been some changes. Maybe some of you, particularly Gen X, boomers, you've seen a lot of cultural change over the last few decades. And you're finding adjusting to those changes being very difficult. Maybe some of you are going through some health changes right now. Maybe you got word this past week that, that, that really hit hard. Church, I know what? We go through changes, don't we? So you just, you just got a new pastor. And we're going through that, we're, we're gonna go through that change and that transition. Now the reality is some changes are good, some changes are bad, some changes you know are coming, some changes catch you by surprise, some changes you have control over and other changes not so much. And one thing is for sure, we are going to experience change. Change is actually even embedded, as Marsh said earlier, into the created order. So let me ask you this question. How do you do with change? How, how do you feel about change? I want you to sit in that moment just for a second about that question. How do you feel about change? What do you do with changes? And, and what you might say is, well, it just depends, Josh. It just depends. Well, here's what, I, here's what I hope this series will do is to help you process the changes that come in life to help us make sense out of life. Because to help us process the change, we have to enter into transition. Everybody say transition. Let me define transition. This is our working definition through this series. Transition is the inner process through which people come to terms with the change as they let go of the way things used to be and they reorient themselves to the way things are now. 
So all of these changes that happen in our life, if we're going, if we're going to get through these changes, we got to process those changes, which is transition. Now, now here's the principle. Don't miss this. Tell your neighbor, don't miss this. Here it is. To process change, we must embrace transition. To process change, we must embrace transition. Everybody say that with me. To process change, we must embrace transition. Now, William Bridges in his book, Transition, he talks about how change is situational and transition is psychological. Change, situational, transition, psychological. So me and my my family moving from Wheaton to Longwood, that is a situational change. But as we make this change, we've got to process what it, what it is to live in Florida. We've got, we got to buy some sunscreen. I've already done that. Put some sunscreen in my golf bag. Put some sunscreen in my office. But there's a lot of things that we have to process. Like it, it, my, my wife, she grew up in South Florida. And one of the things that she, she tells me every time I look at the weather, I'm like, oh, it's a 40% chance of rain, 60% chance of rain. She's like, it rains every day in Florida. So that's, that's a process. I got to make sure I get my umbrella. I, I got to make, make sure I have my rain jacket, right? So anyways, that, that is a situational, but if I'm going to embrace that change, it has to become psychological. I got to process it. Now, now, the way to process change, the way through transitions involves three phases, an ending, a neutral zone, and a new beginning, an ending, the neutral zone, and the new beginning. Now, when it comes to processing changes, when it, when it comes to embracing transitions, there are at least five options. Everybody hold up your, the, the, the number five, five. You have five options when it comes to processing these changes. The, the first is the stop mode. Everybody say stop. stop. All right, there. The stop mode involves you having the ability and power to stop the change that is happening. Like, so for instance, we got two teenagers in the house. If we wanted to stop them from dating, we have the ability and the power to do that. We just stop it. Like, no, we ain't ready for that season. But in Dallas, we have not stopped it. <laughs> so you pray for us as we have these teenagers. But then the, the next mode is the survival mode. Everybody say survival. survival. All right, this is where there are so many changes happening in your life, you can't even process those changes. And so what you enter into is survival mode. And what typically happens when we enter into survival mode, we begin to embody and reflect the changes that are happening in our life. So if it's painful, if they're hurting us, if there's suffering involved, we begin to embody that and inflict onto others what we're feeling because we are just surviving the changes because we have not processed them. Then the third option, you know what the third option is? It's the stuck mode. Everybody say stuck. So you're, try, you're trying to process. You're trying to process the change. You're trying to enter into transition. But the pain of the future is just too much, and you begin to look at the past. And then what you begin to do is you begin to revise the past and its history. It's kind of like what Israel did, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks from now. Israel, God's going to deliver them out of Egypt, and he's going to lead them to a glorious future in the promised land. But they, as they're walking to the promised land, they start processing that. They start processing what it's going to take to get to the promised land. They get stuck in transition, and they begin to look backwards to Egypt, and they're like, well, we, we, we much preferred Egypt. At least we got food. I mean, like, well, no, listen, you are slaves. 
God has freed you, and now he's given you a glorious future, and you can't process that change. So you get stuck. See, a lot of churches, a lot of churches get stuck. They get stuck because they don't know how to process the cultural changes. They don't know how to reach their community. They get stuck because one pastor leaves and another pastor comes and they want, oh, I, I wish he was more like this. Or, you know, and so what happens, they get stuck in transition because the process of the change is just too much for them to embrace their new beginning. Everybody all right? Happy Easter, happy Easter, happy Easter. <laughs> and then the fourth option is merely functioning. So maybe some of you, you can process the change or the changes. And it brings about the functionality of your life, of maybe your marriage, of, of culture. But let me ask you this. Do you think God created us just to function? No, because the fifth option is this, is flourish. See, when we enter into change, when we embrace transition. What God really wants from us is that we, we go through the changes, we go through the transition, and we come out better and our lives more in line with flourishing, not just functioning. But don't miss this. Every transition, there is a transformation. So William Bridges, he talks about how every transition results in transformation. Therefore, transitions are transformational. Regard, so, like, again, I gave you five options. Every one of those options, whichever one you choose, it is transforming you into something. And that's why I want us to, to talk about the two cosmic transitions in human history. I want us to process the fall of Adam and Eve and what happened and how we need to process original sin, how we need to process living in a broken world. But, but God did not leave us in our sin. God did not leave us in our brokenness. He pursued us. That's why he sent Jesus and Jesus on the cross, his death, and then his burial, then his resurrection. That was the second cosmic transition. And we got to process that too. Because if we process one without the other, it doesn't bring about the transformation that God wants to bring in our life. Maybe some of you here, you're thinking to yourself, well, I mean, have you ever heard somebody say this in your marriage? Well, they're just not the person that I married 20 years ago. Because at some point, all of those changes led to either you stopping the change, barely surviving the change, functioning the change, and then you wake up and you don't want to be married to that person anymore. And so you would rather leave your marriage than stay in it. But that's not what God wants. And so at some point, you've, you failed to process those changes and those transitionings after the image of Jesus. And you, started, you, you kept on processing it in the image of Adam. So here's the main point. If you're ready for the main point, say you're ready. Here's the main point. To process all of life's transitions to experience the greatest transformation, we need Jesus. All of life's transitions to experience the greatest transformation, the one that brings about flourishing in every sphere of life, you need, I need, we need Jesus. And that's what I'm hoping to accomplish this morning is to help us process the fall of humanity as well as the coming of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? And we're going to read Luke 
chapter 23, verses 32 through 42. Because in this context, what we're going to see is how people were processing the change that Jesus came to bring. We read this, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him mockingly, which read, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, everybody say this. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, I do pray that your word would speak and go to, go to work, shaping and molding us, even bringing about new creation this morning. And it's in your name we pray, amen. amen. Here's the question, you may have a seat. Here's a question. How, how can you have such a dark scene where people are wanting to kill Jesus? As we read in the Bible, Jesus was the God-man. He was the god who became human. And if you study the Gospels, you will see that Jesus came to heal the lame, give sight to the blind, bestow dignity to the least of these, to feed the multitudes. He casted out demons. He gave deeper teaching to the, uh, to the understanding of the kingdom of God. He even raised the dead. By his own words, he came to seek and to save the lost, to give his life a ransom for many. He came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So by any standards, like you don't even have to believe in Jesus. You don't even have to be a Christian. But by any person's standard, Jesus was making this small region a better place. He was giving a small glimpse of paradise. Everybody say paradise. You see, when we think about paradise, we tend to think of beauty. When we think of paradise, it's breathtaking. There, there's no pain. There's no worry. There's contentment. There's satisfaction. There's fulfillment. There are no needs in paradise. There's, there's not even any wants in paradise. You have everything. Everything is bliss. Everything is glorious. Everything is flourishing in paradise. You see, Jesus, he's ushering in paradise, the inbreaking kingdom of God, where there is no lame, where there is no hurt, where there is no division, where there is no poor, where there is no hungry. He is ushering in paradise. He has come to bring new creation. But yet we see here he is on the cross. How? What has gone so terribly wrong? That the king of glory come to make all things new is nailed to a criminal's cross in between two thieves. Well, you got to go all the way back to the very beginning where we see paradise. You see, in Genesis 1, we read that God created the heavens and the earth. And I love this picture in Genesis and how God goes to work and he goes to work by speaking 
And he's speaking creation into existence. Just think about that power. Think about that precision. Think about that intellect for him to speak and these things are created. I love how God actually creates the structures. He creates the environments. He creates the atmospheres that he's going to put life in. And after he creates the structures on day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, he's going to create these these living beings, these living creatures and humanity, and he's going to put them in these structures, not just for the functionality of life, but the flourishing of life. That's why every day he says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he gets to the sixth day, he looks at it and he says, it's what? Very good. It's very good. But I love day six where he creates mankind in his image. You you have to understand what was going on at that time because that idea of God creating mankind in his image is so important because what God is doing in Genesis 1, he's, he's instituting his kingdom on planet earth and by creating mankind in his image, they act as vice regents. They basically act as prince and princess of God. And they're going to reflect his glory because the practice at that time was that kings would put images of themselves in far-flung corners of their territory signifying their rule and reign extended there. And so when he creates Adam and Eve in his image and he puts them on planet earth, he is saying, this is my domain. This is my kingdom. And you get to rule on behalf of me. And so I I love the picture even in Genesis 2 where God, he takes the dirt and he begins to form. He doesn't speak man into existence, but he gets his hands dirty and he begins to craft man. And then man is laying there lifeless, no breath. But, But what we see is that God hovers over him and breathes life into his nostrils and he becomes fully alive. That's why I love the term fully alive here at Northland. And so, so now, Adam, he, he's fully alive because God has breathed life into him. And God, he creates this garden and he puts mankind there. And he and Adam have this perfect relationship with one another. I mean, I know that our finite minds cannot grasp the kind of relationship that God had with Adam. And he's like, man, I've created this garden for you. I want you to enhance it. I want you to expound on it. I want you to expand it. And you can, have, you can have whatever you want in this garden, but, but this one thing, this one tree, I do not want you to eat from it. But here's another cool thing about the creation of Adam, is that God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone. You see, some people somehow get it twisted in their minds that it was Adam who said that he needed to help her. No, 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 don't miss this. Adam was content in God. He was not looking for someone to complete him. He was already complete in the creator. And so God is the one who says, hey, it's not good for man to be alone because what I want him to do of being fruitful, multiply, filling, and subduing the earth, he needs a helpmate. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring him this incredible gift. So Adam, I'm going to put you to sleep, buddy. And then I'm going to to operate on you. I'm going to perform the first operation on planet earth. And so he he takes a rib out of Adam and then he goes to work fashioning that rib into a woman. And then Adam wakes up from his anesthesia and then God, he walks Eve down uh, the garden aisle there. And I I love it. It's the first song that we see in scripture. Adam says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called. Whoa, man. Like that's first song. First song. It was awesome. And now in the garden, Adam and Eve, not only are they enjoying perfect relationship with God, but perfect relationship with one another. Everything is as it should be. It's flourishing. But then something happened. 
Because we can look at our world today and go, well, it's not flourishing. There might be glimmers, but it's not flourishing. So what happened? Well, Eve and Adam, they're in the garden. Adam kind of slacked on his responsibilities because in Genesis 2, 15, he was to guard and keep the garden. He wasn't, let, he wasn't to let anything unclean in there. But somehow this, this slithering, crafty serpent comes into the garden and he purchased himself either on or near the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one day as Eve and Adam are walking through the garden, Satan, the serpent, begins to talk like Dr. Doolittle talking to animals. It's, pretty, a pretty weird, it's a pretty weird scene. But now the serpent engages Eve in a dialogue, and he's trying to deceive her about the fruit of the tree. Uh, through the conversation, he gets Eve to the point where she is looking at the tree, and she's processing the tree. She's processing the change that might occur if she takes from the fruit. And so what she does is she eats from the forbidden tree, she turns around and gives it to her boneheaded husband, Adam. He asks no questions, but takes a bite, and then they realize that they are naked. The eyes of both of them are open, and they begin to go to work sewing fig leaves to cover their nakedness, to, clo to clo uh, clothe their shame and their guilt. But then God, he comes to the garden later on in the cool of the day. He can't find his prized creation. They are hiding because they have heard God coming and they are ashamed of where they are. They are now separated from God in their shame, their guilt, and their sin. Paradise has been lost. So as a result of their sin and rebellion and their treason, their disobedience, now they find themselves in pain. Now they find themselves in chaos. See, what God had created with order, now order is unraveling. Now they have relation and cultural friction. There will be an abuse of position and an abuse of power. They will struggle in their vocation. They will struggle in cultivating. There will be strife in their work. There will be the inevitability of death. There will be separation from God. God, even God kicks them out of the garden at the latter part of Genesis 3. Because of sin, what ended and what began? Heaven on earth ended, hell on earth began. Order ended, chaos began. Safety ended, fear began. Stability ended, struggle began. Innocence ended, guilt began. Serenity ended, shame began. And from that moment on, humanity would have a damaged and fractured, broken processor. I don't know about you, but, but I get frustrated every time I try to do something with my phone or do something with my computer, give it a command or open up a document and I see the dreaded spin wheel of death. Anybody ever seen this? Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, come on now. I want it to, I want it to happen now. That's us. That's humanity. We have a damaged and broken processor. All of the data that we're trying to process, all of the changes that we are trying to process that's coming at us, we cannot. We cannot process it because sin has damaged our processor. Let me give you two examples of humanity's damaged and broken processor. Genesis 4. Abel, Cain and Abel, they're brothers. What we see, Abel, Abel brings this incredible sacrifice and offering to God and he receives it. 
But Cain brings another offering, a different offering, and God doesn't receive it. And so how Cain processes that change isn't to love his brother, but to what? Kill his brother. You see, this helps us make sense of the damage processor even today. Our culture, people in our culture would rather wound and mangle and kill with their words anybody who is different, thinks different because it's a change to them. That's why we are so polarized. That's why we have cancel culture because we cannot stand the change that is different than us, just like Cain could not stand Abel. And then you got Genesis 11. You have the people of planet Earth, instead of being fruitful and multiplying throughout planet Earth, they gather into this one place and they want to build a city. And at the center of their city, they want their name to be great. So it's not about God. It's not about the creator. It's about them. And so they're wanting to build a city for their name's sake. And can I just, can I just say this? This is why we should not look to a government, regardless of whether it is a democracy, a constitutional republic, a social dem- democracy, a socialist uh, government, or even a communist government, because every human government can only bring about a functionality. It cannot bring about a flourishing. That is why we look to another king and kingdom that is not of this world, because humanity has a damaged processor. And so if you look around the world, and you look around our nation, and you look around the cities and communities, you see hurt, you see pain, you see suffering, you see division, polarization, violence, friction. All of these things are a direct result of the sin of humanity. We have lost paradise. And now, in our sin and in our shame, God promises to redeem. God promises to reverse the curse. And so throughout history, God is preparing to send his son. God is preparing to send us the king. God is preparing us to send a redeemer, a savior, a deliverer who will allow us to experience new creation and begin to process how he's making all things new. So that's why he sends Jesus. Jesus, he is the king come to make all things new. But as he is here, I want us to realize throughout that time and throughout human history, although mankind has lost paradise, they've been looking for paradise. And what we see here at this scene, while Jesus is on the cross, we see how mankind has been processing paradise. Well, how have they been processing paradise? Well, let's look at, let's look at group number one, Romans. Everybody say the Romans. Well, here, here's how they're processing the change that Jesus has come to bring. They're actually really indifferent. They didn't care what Jesus did as long as, they, as long as he did not cause a ruckus and threaten the peace of Rome. So they're processing the change in the environment where the people, where the Jewish people want Rome to crucify Jesus. And so Rome is actually accustomed to stomping out all forms of insurrection through humiliation and embarrassment, which is why we have the cross. Then at the cross, you see the soldiers. They're focused on work. They're just doing what they are told. They're actually playing games at the foot of the cross. They're desensitized. They're emotionally disconnected. Do you know why they are indifferent to Jesus? Do you know why they're indifferent to the change that Jesus came to bring? Because they perceived that they already had paradise. You see, they had the the Roman Pax, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So they they felt like they already had their paradise. Let me ask you this. How many of you here today, you're engaging with us online, that you're indifferent to Jesus? 
You have no problem with Jesus. You're just going about your life doing your own thing because you think you've arrived at paradise because you, you got a good job. You live in the, the, the kind of house that you own. You have the 2.5 kids. You've got Fido that you can come home to and play catch with and pet on, on rough days. I mean, you, you got it made because you think you have paradise. And then can I also just say this, because with, with Rome, they, they thought they came into paradise uh, through aggression, through force. And can I just say this, that a people or nation or a group or a political party or activist that rules through suppression, that rules through aggression, that rules through fear is in paradise. And what we're seeing in our nation today is a bunch of people fighting over power so that they can dictate what our country looks like. And so anybody who fights, maligns, or destroys others to institute what they perceive as paradise isn't paradise. I'm sweating up here, as you can see. And can I just say this while I'm at it? A person that goes through life that is indifferent to the hurt, suffering, brokenness of the world isn't truly living in a paradise. So you can live in the suburbs of life, in the comfort of your own home, and be indifferent to the hurt and chaos in this world, but what you are living in is a mirage of paradise because you truly are living in the hell. You just, you're just not willing to admit it. That's wrong. But then you got the Jewish religious leaders. They had processed the changes that Jesus brought about in his teachings and his ministry, and they saw him as a threat to their way of life, to their religion. Their new beginning was going to be the end of Jesus because they refused to embrace and adopt the change that Jesus came to bring. And you know why they did that? They are still waiting on paradise because they thought that the Messiah would come and conquer Rome and institute paradise. Let me ask you this. How how many of you have a hard time accepting Jesus because you are too entrenched in your own idolatry and worship to recognize him as king? You see, this happens in churches all all over the globe today. You know there are some churches today, if Jesus came to preach their Easter sermon, they couldn't even recognize him because they are so rooted in their own religious idolatry and religious institution. Do you know how you can tell the difference between someone who is rooted in a religious institution and idolatry versus someone who follows Jesus? Oh, here it is. Come in here close, church, for this. The one will be shouting and railing and attempting to crucify the other, while the latter one will be attempting to love and forgive the other. The earlier one lives and engages those who threaten their way of life, their religion, their religious institution in a way that they perceive their paradise is coming. You see, the Jews believed their paradise was coming by force. They just had to wait on their their Messiah. And so now they're killing this Messiah because they think that's how their Messiah would have handled it. You see... That's not how Jesus came. Jesus came as a suffering servant. He came to identify with his people. He came to die for sinners so that they could be reconciled to God. And so his agenda did not line up with the agenda of the religious leaders. Listen, that's why as a pastor, we will always, we will always find Jesus's agenda and align with him. We will not align with my agenda. We will not align with your agenda. We will align with the king's agenda. And it actually might be different from our agenda. And then thief number one, just make sure your neighbor's all right. Say, hey, are you all right? Okay. So he, he had pursued paradise through breaking the law. 
And now he's been caught and punished for his crimes. And he finds himself mad and upset, railing demands that Jesus not only save himself, but turn and save him. He's mad at the world and at God. He even feels entitled for God to act as this genie in a bottle that he can just command anything from God and God would just swoop down and do it. But don't miss this. He's getting ready for his life to end and he's going to the next one and he is going out in a white, hot, angry blaze of glory. He knows paradise has been lost and he has never found it. And so he is grasping at anything he can do now to preserve his life. The way, don't, don't miss this church, the way he is processing the end pointed him to his new beginning. But it won't be the new beginning he's longing for. You know, people all the time talk about how it's unfair that God would send people to hell. You ever heard that? Let's process this for a second. Have you ever thought about it this way? That God's just letting them go where their life has been pointing and directing them. You see, we lost paradise because we chose. Now, before you say, well, that was Adam and Eve. If I would have been in the garden, I would have. No, you wouldn't have. Stop it. (laughs) And so all mankind has been doing since the fall is pointing and directing themselves to their next beginning, which is hell, which is why Jesus had to come. See, the way you live in your transitions, the way you process your transitions will be transforming you into the person you are becoming. And so are you becoming more like Adam in the fall? Are you becoming more like Jesus in redemption? In every transition. See, for these three people, think about how they're processing the cosmic change that Jesus came to bring. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to rail. And so that's how they are processing because they are looking for paradise. They just don't think Jesus is paradise. Let me ask you this. Have, Have you found, have you found, have you found, have you found paradise or are you still looking for paradise? You know, that song, Sound of Silence, is deceiving because it's so beautiful. But if you read the lyrics, it's dark. Because when Paul Simon wrote that song and you had Simon and Garfunkel, they sang it, they were painting a dark picture of humanity. One where humanity couldn't even talk to one another and listen. A humanity that was divisive, a humanity that worshiped the created things of neon lights. You see what Simon and Garfunkel sung decades ago paints this picture that paradise has been lost. People are looking for paradise, but they haven't found it. Even in the richest nation on planet earth, they have not found paradise. They're like the Romans. They're like the religious Jews. They're like the first thief. But there was a fourth person there, and he's the other thief. And I love how he is processing the situation. He's processing the environment. He's processing his own life. He's processing Jesus. And in verse 40, we see that this thief, the second thief, tells the other criminal says, don't you fear God 
Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what we deserve. Here's this man, finally, he's come to the point in his life where he's like, I'm on the cross because I deserve to be on the cross. Let me ask you, church, like even if you are a believer today, do you realize that you and I should have been on the cross? Some of you, you're far from God. You think you have it all together. No, 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 you don't. That's why I've set the stage. We don't have it all together. We should have been on the cross. That's why Jesus, he hung between two criminals. We should have been the third. And so he's saying, we're getting what we deserve. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. There's something about this man. And and probably he's been from the region. He's probably heard of Jesus' ministry. He's probably heard of Jesus' miracles. He's probably heard of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. He's heard statements that Jesus has uttered from the cross. One to his mom. Mom, behold your son. Son, behold your mom. He's heard Jesus say, I thirst. He's heard Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in this passage, he has even heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And so this thief, he's, he's processing his life. He's come to the point where he's like, I'm a sinner. I deserve death. I deserve condemnation. But this man, he's not a sinner. There's something about this man. There's something about the love that's coming through his eyes that you can't even see because he's so distorted, because he's been beat so badly. But there's something about this man that he's not a sinner, that he's about something more than just sin. And I love verse 42, because you have to, you have to imagine the scene. Let's, let's imagine that we're the thief on the cross, like he's been hanging there. And to be crucified, you would die of a lack of oxygen. You would suffocate. And so to, to even speak at this point, they have to push themselves up. They have to push themselves up so that they can breathe, so that they can speak. And so, so as this thief, as he gets up enough energy to, to, to rise himself up, he says, Jesus, re- remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he's, he's processing and he sees that, that there, is, there is a king next to him, that he's doing something on the cross. He's ushering in something. He's ushering in the kingdom. And this thief says, hey, Jesus, I believe you are king. I believe you are savior. Will you just please graciously, humble, humbly receive me into your kingdom? See, that thief, that thief that day believed that Jesus, he believed that Jesus was paradise. Let me ask you, is Jesus your paradise? Have you found him to be paradise? Where there's total satisfaction, fulfillment, regardless of what you go through. That in him there is joy unspeakable. In him there is flourishing. Have you found paradise to be in Jesus? So as he is taking his final breath, this thief truly believes that he will be taking his next breath with Jesus. But I, I want you... I want you to imagine you're that thief. You've just asked Jesus, hey, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And so as he's, as he's 
hanging there on the cross. He's waiting for Jesus' reply. So Jesus, he has, to, he has to garner up enough energy to raise himself, to get the breath, to say these next words. And here's what he says to the thief. Could you imagine? You're the thief. Now Jesus has made eye contact. The, the man who has a crown of thorns shoved on his head, his, his face unrecognizable. And so you can barely get a glimpse of his eye. He will say these words. Today, 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 you will be with me in paradise. Unbelievable. Now, here's what's so cool about paradise. Everybody say paradise. So in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, and God's issuing out all of these curses, at the very end of the chapter, it says that God sent them, God kicked them out of the garden. That word garden in the Septuagint is the same word that Jesus uses when he says what he says from the cross. You see, what Jesus told that thief, today you will be with me in the garden. Today you will be with me in heaven. Today you will be with me in the presence of God. You see, Adam and Eve, they broke fellowship They were kicked out of the garden. God sealed the entranceway with the cherubim. But Jesus, what he was doing in his death, in his death, he was opening back up the pathway. He was opening back up paradise. He's saying, all who come, come after me. I'm paradise. But don't miss this either. As you can tell, I'm having fun right now. Don't miss this either. The reason why Jesus knew he could say, truly, truly, like, I know, son, you haven't been to church. I know, son, you don't know the doctrine of justification. I know, son, that you've not heard good preaching. I know, son, but here's the thing. It's not about what you have done. It's about what I'm doing right now. And in Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.15, scholars refer to that as the first gospel. where where God issues this promise that there will be enmity between you, Eve, and the serpent, between his offspring and your offspring. And the serpent would bruise his heel, but he shall crush the head of Satan. You see, Jesus, the reason why he could invite the thief into paradise, the reason why he invites you and I into paradise, because he knew that he was going to be buried, but he wasn't going to stay dead. He knew that Satan was going to bite at his heel, but he was going to come out of that tomb, and he was going to crush the head of Satan. Yeah. Oh, he crushed the head of Satan. Now, those who live in Jesus, they live fully alive. Those who live in Jesus, they are new creations in Christ. Those who live in Jesus, they can crush the head of Satan. Why? Because that is what Jesus, our King, did. And for that thief, death was arrested and new life began. Thank you.